Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. On this episode, I talk to Francisca Coleman, an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School. We talk about free speech regulation in America, about cancel culture, and about threats to free speech and discourse on American college campuses. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. This podcast is part of what's called the uh, Civil Discourse Project which is part of the Skettles mission about inviting diverse speakers with different viewpoints to campus and promoting robust discussion and debate from different viewpoints on campus. And so I'm really interested in talking to you more about your research and work on free speech, on cancel culture, and all of these topics, especially coming from the perspective of a um, legal scholar, But before we do so, I'm wondering whether you could maybe just tell me a little bit about your academic background and how you got interested in these topics related to free speech and cancel culture, and specifically how you got interested in doing academic research on these topics. There's a lot in that question. I was um, in a doctoral program at the University of Pennsylvania. It was a doctoral program in education, but my focus was on how language is used in education, uh, particularly kind of discourse analysis and what kinds of assumptions are encoded in the kind of words people choose to use and the kind of moves that they make in discourse. That my kind of research background, while I was in education, I realized that a lot of the policy decisions are influenced not by educational research, but by legal research. And so that led me to move from education to law. I finished my PhD, but I was doing it simultaneously while in the law school. So how did I get interested in cancel culture? Well, due to finishing a PhD and the law degree at the same time, and also writing my PhD while at a law firm, I took a break um, and I decided to go to South Korea for just a year at that time when I was thinking in order to decompress, you know, get new research ideas because I was exhausted from the dissertation writing process on top of being an associate in a law firm. While I was in Korea... Why South Korea? Am I allowed to ask why South Korea? Yeah, so it was partially by chance. I was actually just looking because I was originally a teacher, so I thought a break for me would just be teaching somewhere outside of the U.S. so I don't feel evaluated. And, you know, Korea was one of the places I came across. They had a very good opportunity for me to, they were looking for someone to teach constitutional law, which I was deeply interested in. They were also shifting to a U.S. model for their law school. So there were some pedagogy opportunities. And, you know, I'm a person of faith, so kind of after praying about it, it seemed like, yes, you know, this is the thing to do. I felt like I could make a difference there, actually. So while I was in Korea, teaching constitutional law, I was invited to participate in this global roundtable on hate speech by the Korean Communication Standards Commission. And, you know, the assumption was these other nations and representatives of the other nations are going to talk about hate speech regulation, but America doesn't have hate speech regulation. And so maybe you could just tell us, like, why you don't have hate speech regulation. 
Um, but actually, around the time they invited me to do this, I had just been reading about the Chick-fil-A president who mentioned that, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman and, you know, people were calling for boycotts at Chick-fil-A. And so the approach I decided to take for the roundtable was to say not that America doesn't have regulation of speech, right? But to say that America has a social regulation of hate speech where many other nations have a legal regulation of hate speech. And so that's where my interest in this came from. Yeah, this is something that comes out in several of your pieces that I read is this distinction between a, I guess, a legal or a formal regulation of speech and a social regulation of speech. So enlighten me, why is it that people instinctively say, or you say America doesn't have any regulation of speech? Is this because of the First Amendment? Yeah, I think it's because people view America as kind of a free speech exceptionalism, right? Like they just have this vast promotion and um, protection of free speech because of the legal regime that has kind of arisen around the First Amendment. It is very, very narrow in terms of the type of speech that can be penalized. In many instances, it doesn't seem like speech at all. It's like speech that's borderline conduct, like intimidation and harassment creating a hostile environment, that kind of thing. So these are the only types of very specific types of speech that can really be banned or regulated in the United States. Threats, yeah. Mm -hmm. But in other countries, obviously, there's more. I mean, um, I'm from New Zealand, and they recently had a long debate about bringing in some hate speech laws, and it became kind of clear in the course of that debate that there aren't a lot of restrictions, actually, on what the government can regulate. Apparently, in common law countries like uh, New Zealand and Britain and Australia, there are really very few precedents that actually clearly defend free speech. Is, is that, am I interpreting that correctly? I'm not as familiar. I mean, I know a little bit about Germany and South Africa, but yeah, one of the things that there were just different trajectories, right, that some nations had to start regulating speech, like hate speech, just because of how they were positioned and what they were facing in the aftermath of World War II and kind uh -huh. of the rise of anti-Semitism. Right. This is the German case, I presume. Yeah. But the U.S., right, was dispositioned differently. So when other nations were really signing on to the covenant that addresses hateful speech, the U.S. was kind of already kind of on a different path. And so it took like 30 years for us to catch up with that. I think that dynamic where that covenant was, you know, developed and like many other nations signed on to it for reasons that flowing out of the war. But what was happening in America at that time was people using protections against hate speech to kind of crush the civil rights movement. And so we just took a different trajectory. The major part of your argument and something that it sounds like you first developed for this conference in South Korea is that although there might not be formal restrictions on free speech in the United States, there are, I guess, decentralized, non-governmental, social restrictions on free speech. What do you mean by that? One of the things about rights in America that some other nations have that some don't, how you enforce rights. In America, rights are enforced only against the government. You cannot enforce your rights against other people, right? And so rights enforced against the government, this is called vertical enforcement. But rights, when you can enforce your rights against your fellow citizens, that's called horizontal enforcement. And so horizontal enforcement is like one citizen claiming, you know, I have like you, you've discriminated against me, right? You've abridged my freedom of speech. 
in you know kind of the nations you mentioned, sometimes citizens can say that legally as a legal matter, there's kind of a formal legal mechanisms for you to actually bring claims against your fellow citizens to make you know these assertions that they have violated your right to speech or to whatever other right you're claiming. In America, there is no, the law cannot take into consideration the violation of your First Amendment rights by other individuals. The actual formal mechanisms of law just can really, you know, our constitution, so not law, but our constitutional law, there is a state action requirement. So only the state can impinge on free speech rights in a legal sense. You can't sue anyone for impinging against your free speech rights in the United States. Not like your First Amendment rights. Now, those other categories of rights that we've kind of said are not pure speech, there are some tort law things. So then that brings us to then if there is like no horizontal enforcement of rights, what's happening when other citizens are actually holding people accountable? And I realize you're still being held accountable, right? If you're in South Africa and you say something, I think like one of the people in one of my articles, she was like, I'm, you know, going to Africa. I hope I don't get AIDS. Ha ha ha. I'm white. Just kidding. Right. And so she was immediately called out on social media about this. Had she been in South Africa? she could maybe be taken to equality court, right, over this kind of slur in a way. So here in America, though, there is no formal mechanism that people can use, right? And But you notice people using informal mechanisms, right? They call her out on social media. They email her employer. Why are you employing this person? Now, definitely, because it's informal, you have to do a lot more work, right? You have to get, you know, buy-in from the institution. You have to just get, you know, raise, you know, arouse, you know, the general public. So there is a burden on you. It's not just between you, the judge, and the person, right? You need this community buy-in. But that phenomenon, right, happens all the time, right? I feel like it is a form of horizontal rights enforcement, but it's a horizontal rights enforcement that's taking place outside of formal legal mechanisms. Very, very interesting. You know, recently I had a discussion with some of my students about the concept of cancel culture. And as a group, we found it very, very difficult to define what cancel culture is. Would you say that this is in a way a definition of cancel culture, that cancel culture is a particular form of this decentralized horizontal enforcement of our speech regulation? So, you know, I use the term cancel culture because it's a term that resonates with people and that people understand. But the term cancel culture actually is not a neutral term, right? Cancel culture is a kind of an evaluation of the process, right? And so I don't know that it's so much kind of an instantiation of the social regulation of speech so much as it's an evaluation, right? So if you use the term cancel culture, social regulation of speech gone awry, right? If you use the term consequence culture, right, or accountability culture, you're saying, oh, social regulation of speech that's functioning as it should. Yes, of course. These are the two kind of diametrically opposed characterizations of some of these events, whether you call them cancel culture or whether you call them accountability culture. There are these two sort of competing characterizations. But you would argue that both of these instances, differing instances of this type of social regulation of speech. Yes, I I think that there are kind of both of them are kind of labels we put on the social regulation of speech. And are they inherently subjective, meaning that is it inherently subjective and a political question and perhaps just a question of who you agree with, whether you think that 
instance of social regulation of speech is an example of cancel culture or an example of accountability culture? Or is there something more to this? these two characterizations? Yes. So I think both of them are going to be partial truths when they are applied to different situations. But I think when we use the term cancel culture, we're not just describing what happened to a person. We're also implying that it was somehow unfair. It wasn't just desserts, right? And so that fairness is always going to be a little bit subjective. But I think that, you know, constitutional law, you know, due process is always about fairness. And so I think that it's possible to have a consensus around what's unfair. This discussion has been incredibly abstract, which is perhaps a little unfair on some of our listeners. And I feel that maybe we should discuss a couple of concrete instances. And some of your work does this. So what do you think are some of the most contentious or important instances of this type of social sanction or regulation of free speech, perhaps cases that illustrate these dynamics really nicely. So I'm glad you said illustrate, because I think kind of important is difficult, right? Because there is kind of asymmetries of coverage. One of the things that I noticed is some speakers have higher visibility and also are embedded in networks that have kind of more far-reaching platforms. So when they encounter collective efforts to hold them accountable for their speech or to sanction them for their speech, it gets a lot of news coverage. Like, for example, a prominent professor or a celebrity or someone like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas there are all of these kind of everyday, ordinary people who get you know fired from their jobs, but there are only a few random newspapers are kind of not even newspapers, maybe blogs, right, that cover it. But I can give you some illustrative examples. So one example has been in the news very recently, right? The professor at Hamline University. Yes, of course, I discussed this with my students in class. Mm-hmm. Who was fired for showing the image of the Prophet Muhammad. Now, I think there are a lot of people who feel like that was unfair. And I am on the side of the unfairness because for a couple of reasons, one of the things that I often advocate for is due process, right? Fact finding. And also that the first sanction, if there has been some kind of violation of the norms of civility on the campus, that firing should be reserved for some kind of extraordinary speech infraction around which there is a community consensus on the campus, not just one group, but like across ideologies, across races, across genders. To me, firing is kind of a last resort. So in cases where it's a first resort, I'm very concerned. In this situation, I was also concerned because, you know, when you talk to students, and I feel like I do not blame the students at all, I think the students, their position is very understandable. Basically, what you have are kind of Muslim students in an environment in which, you know, they feel that, you know, you just had a president, right, who's trying to exclude them from the country. You have like rising kind of anti-Muslim violence. You just think about various members of Congress who are also identified as Muslim who have been kind of facing, you know, all kinds of things happening to them. And so I think that there are some societal things right, that are happening in society that made the professor's showing of the photo, um, of the picture, triggering. What I'm concerned about 
is the university kind of trying to put all of that, you know, kind of give some kind of sanction for all of that. Like, you know, oh, we aware of all of these societal harms, right? And we're going to exact compensation for that from this one vulnerable member of our community. And so to me, I think the reason the Muslim students were concerned, right, was not just based on the professor's actions, right, but based on this wider context, right? So I guess one example, I was trying to think of an example um, at one point, because I discussed this also with, with my students. But if you think about, let's say, you know, China holds a lot of U.S. debt, right? And but let's say some Americans in China, right, happen to be in China, the US is not paying its debt. So we're gonna extract it, right, from those Americans who happen to be in China at a given point, right? And that seems a little a little unfair. And so there are some kind of debts for exclusionary policies, right? That more and more vulnerable groups are demanding that the nation and the society and the community, right, take account, you know, kind of be held accountable for. But in these kind of discrete instances on campus, that accountability is passed on to whichever person, right, happens to be the most vulnerable at that time. Had she been a tenured professor, this would have come out completely different. I have a question about that interpretation of the events, though, and it partially comes actually from discussions with my students about this exact same event, which is that many of my students seem to think that it was a little they agreed with you that the punishment was a little over the top, but all of them could understand that the university did what they did to punish the professor who had shown these images of uh, the Prophet Muhammad. And the reason that they understood it is because they understand that universities just don't want negative publicity because they worry about losing revenue through enrollments. And so do you think that perhaps these sorts of moral and legal concerns that you raise that you know, we're going to discuss here on the podcast at length. Do you wonder whether they really are doing the work here or whether it's just a simple kind of corporate profit-driven logic on the part of university leadership in many cases? I think they're interrelated, right? Because I think the students don't care about university profit, right? They're, they have these moral concerns, right, about exclusion and inclusion on the campus. Now, how the university responds, right, to that, definitely, I think it implicates profits. But I think if the students are feeling unwelcome on campus, then yeah, the university is kind of taking, you know, I told my students cheap inclusion, right? So maybe there are some fundamental changes, right, that they can make on the university campus to kind of address the feelings of exclusion or targeting or isolation that their students are feeling, right? That will take investment in time, money, and maybe it'll be controversial. But, or they could fire this one professor, right? And they have kind of calmed the storm. They've made it seem as if they're very inclusive. And that's actually the cheaper, you know, cheaper path, right? It doesn't require systemic change, right? So, you know, I'm African-American. And so always we talk about the tendency to individualize systemic oppression, right? And I think sometimes cancel culture works in a similar way where there are systemic things on campuses that make vulnerable populations feel excluded, universities individualize it in order to, I don't like the term virtual signaling as applied to individuals, but I think it can be sometimes maybe applied to institutions to kind of say, we're the good guys, we're inclusive by firing this person. And of course, 
that preserves, you know, their student enrollment. So yes, I definitely think there is, I guess like some people have called it the customer satisfaction model, right? Satisfying their customers, but satisfying their customers kind of in the least costly way. I'm interested in the place of the university in these free speech debates. In one of your articles, you describe public schools and universities as crucibles of free speech. Why are universities so often the focus of so much attention when it comes to whether you want to call it cancellations or accountability culture or free speech issues? Why don't we focus on these same dynamics occurring at corporations, for example, or um, in sports clubs or other areas? Why does it seem that so much attention is focused on the university? I think there are multiple, multiple, multiple reasons. But I think one reason is many times the universities are kind of some of the most diverse spaces in our society, right? Due to various attempts by universities to enroll diverse classes. So for many students, right, this is their first exposure to true difference. I mean, they're exposed to true difference at a point sometimes where they are most passionate, right? Where they are, you know, testing the boundaries, they are pushing the boundaries, they are engaged in activism. Many of, you know, kind of the really dramatic changes in our society have been the product of student activism, right? So they're often on the, on the forefront of, of these movements. And so they are unique spaces of thinking deeply about the kinds of issues that underlie and that drive kind of cancel culture efforts. They also sometimes have unique time, right? If you're working a full-time job, I know that I was definitely more active and marching more when I was on the university campus than when I was at the law firm, right? I still wanted to, you know, see justice advance, but I didn't have the same amount. So I think that it's kind of the population that's there, the amount of time and the types of discussions, right? Justice and inclusion and transformation, harm and all of those things, those are centered you know, those are front of mind. And so just the environment of the university. But then also at the same time, the university shapes the thinking, the possibilities and the potentialities of the best and the brightest, right? And so we kind of feel like our future leaders are shaped in the university. And so if you want, if you feel like how people are educated determines how they're going to vote, and what kind of policies they're going to endorse, then everybody wants, you know, to have some kind of input, right? They want to get their perspectives and their ideas before, you know, this group in this formative moment when they're going to really shape their, you know, how they view the democratic discussion. And that's part of the purpose of the university, right? To prepare people to kind of engage in a democratic discussion. But everybody wants their perspective before the students, right? Education is so contentious, right? It's very localized. People fight over the curriculum of education. So cancel culture debates are in part, part of this fight over the content of education, right? Because education on the university is not just professor talk, it's student talk, right? It's invited speaker talk. 
it's talk that happens in the kind of free speech zones and talk that happens on the sidewalk. I mean, so all of this is part of the shaping of the young minds. And so because so much is at stake, then this is also why the university becomes such a contested zone because people feel like their ideas are being excluded at the university, which means that when it comes to the voting booth, right, their ideas are not going to get the reception that they need to kind of get that majority, get over that majority threshold. And do you agree with this argument that free speech is under threat at college campuses compared to previous eras? Do you really think that there's been a decline in the quality or diversity or robustness of speech and debate on American college campuses? I would have to first kind of do just, you know, lawyer, just kind of get some kind of framing. So if by free speech, we mean that free speech used to not have cost, right? And now suddenly it has cost, then I would say I disagree with that. I don't, I think free speech has never been cost free. I think maybe there has been some kind of rebalancing where, you know, we've always tried to have the cost borne by the listeners rather than the speakers. And one of the things that kind of social regulation does is try to shift some of those costs back back to the speakers. But if you're talking about speech, not as this kind of cost-free speech dynamic, but kind of speech, free speech as kind of speech that, you know, supports or promotes the rationales of free speech, right? Self-governance, truth-seeking, self-expression. Then I do think, right, that that is in danger. I don't know that it's in danger because of kind of censorship, right? And so I had this conversation with my students where we kind of talked about modern free speech challenges. And so these are modern free speech challenges that actually the First Amendment was not designed to address because the First Amendment makes assumptions that all of these modern free speech challenges undermine. So one, the First Amendment says, oh, there could be value in false speech. And so we should protect it, right? But one of the greatest dangers, right, to free speech as a vehicle of self-governance and truth-seeking and self-expression, it's fake news, right? And it's becoming even more difficult to detect, you know? And so, but the First Amendment protects false speech, right? Because it's like, oh, erroneous speech is inevitable and, you know, kind of public debate. But I don't think the First Amendment could have envisioned, (laughs) right, the degree to which erroneous speech can masquerade as truth. Filter bubbles, I think, are another danger to free speech. That's not, but it's one of the reasons that cancel culture takes the form it does on university campuses, right? Because people are hearing just the one side of the story, right? And they're hearing that continually, right? And that makes them react to speech infractions in ways that may be new, right? And then of course, social media enables, you know, the filter bubble to really, you know, my students were like, we were just realizing we're in a filter bubble and it's so hard to get out, right? How do you get out of the filter bubble, right? It takes all kinds of energy. And even then you may not be successful. And so that, because you're kind of in this echo chamber, it's very easy for the group that needs to come together to socially sanction someone's speech to come together very quickly with very little kind of need for reason and persuasion because the group is already formed, right? You just give them the reason and then they, you know, but they're not like, you're not persuading these people to kind of join with you in social regulation, right? The group is already made. Like those, I think filter bubbles have created so many pre-made groups that there is not the need for the reason giving and argumentation and debate 
that the First Amendment assumes you're going to engage in before pushing back on someone else's speech. So one other thing I would say, and this is also something that's a little bit different from maybe in the past, which is kind of rights vulnerability. I feel like there is a perception that rights are more vulnerable now, not because anything in the Constitution, but because rights, even though if we, whether you're kind of originalist or a living constitutionalist, rights are propped up by consensus. And the consensus has really disappeared in our society. And so people across the political spectrum feel that their rights are very vulnerable. Now, this is a problem because rights are supposed to be unquestionable, right? That's how you make them stick, right? And so if you're feeling like your rights are vulnerable, you need to make them unquestionable again. So how do you do that? Do you make your right unquestionable by being open to disagreement, by saying, oh, that's very reasonable that you don't think this is a right, right? No, right? If you really want to kind of remove the vulnerability from your right that has been produced by declining consensus, then you can't actually acknowledge, right, that it's subject to reasonable disagreement. Because if it's subject to reasonable disagreement, maybe it's not a right, right, which makes it super, super vulnerable. And so I think that this sense of vulnerability that is the product of declining consensus has created perverse incentives to not listen to other people who disagree with you and to actually view their speech as dangerous in a way that you maybe you would not view it as that dangerous if you did not feel your rights were so vulnerable. I mean, just think. If you're like, you know, you only won by like 2% or 3%, right? Then just a few people persuaded the other way could change the Supreme Court. It could change the Congress. It could change whether or not your nation has, your state has abortion. Um, And so that, I think, makes the stakes higher. And I think that kind of makes the social regulation of speech a little more overactive. What role do you think faculty play in this problem, if we can agree that there is a problem about diversity of thought or free speech on campus, if you agree with that, what role do faculty play? Are they making this problem worse? Or do you think that faculty are actually playing an important role in introducing different ideas to students in modeling civil discourse among themselves and disagreement, you know, in their research seminars and all these things? Where do you think faculty come into this story? I think faculty do both. So one of the things that I tell my students is I can tell you the law. I can't tell you justice, right? I can define the law for you. I can't define justice. And that's my, you know, I have, I give them a whole like little article that I've written about that. But there are some faculty, right, who feel, you know, their whole classes, their whole seminars are to help students see injustices that have gone unnoticed. Right. Um, And so those faculties, you know, those faculty members, that's a part of their self-identity. That's why they're faculty. That's why they're in the university. I think that's why they were hired, because they're going to push students to see things they didn't see before. But that can also right, be taken by students in particular ways. Right. And, you know, because now that they're aware of this injustice, right, then they're like, yes, we have to go and fight it. And so they can, you know, fight it in different ways. And I think sometimes faculty members are like, yes, absolutely, you should fight. I don't know that that's right or wrong or good or bad. I think it becomes problematic if you have kind of 
faculty members who there's no ideological diversity among the faculty members, right? Then I think it can become challenging. But I think it's totally fine for faculty members to expose to students to injustice, to support students' efforts, to combat injustice, to be allies for the students. But I think that there are other faculty members who don't see themselves, right, as allies. And they see themselves as kind of trying to present both sides and introduce diverse perspectives. And I think that that's laudable. One thing that I tell my students is, you know, even though you may try, you know, to introduce perverse, diverse perspectives, you're standing in a particular space. You know, you have a particular predispositions and preconceptions, even if you try to, you know, even when you think you are moving beyond your positionality. You're still in the same same position. And so those efforts are going to fall short. Your objectivity is going to be your version of objectivity. So for me, I think faculty members are doing fine. I think maybe the impetus is on universities, maybe to make sure that they have diversity among faculty members and to make sure that faculty members are protected, right, when they try to draw students' attention to justices or injustices that the students may not agree with. Hmm. Do you think that universities on the whole are doing a good job of that, the contemporary universities? No, no. (laughs) Okay. So you think we're in a bad place when it comes to free speech on campus? Well, not because of the, you know, I think because of the customer service model, right? I think the customer satisfaction model. I think education can sometimes introduce you to new ideas. I don't think education should be traumatic, right? It should not be traumatic. It should not also always be comfortable, right? I think sometimes it should move you from your comfort zone. And I think the profit motive of universities sometimes make them um, reluctant to allow kind of engagement among their community that moves people beyond their, their comfort zone. But I'm also leery of saying, oh, there's this problem on campus that's the kind of censorship and like coddling the students. I'm not a coddling the American mind person, right? What I advocate for my university, I tell them, you know, maybe I'm talking to the void, right? But I say, what we need is actually diversity and inclusion and free speech training that is connected, right? So I think one of the challenges is universities either do one or the other, right? They either are just all about diversity and inclusion and like make the students feel like they fully belong, they're fully included and don't make them uncomfortable because that's going to make them feel excluded, right? And so then they go too far in that direction or they say free speech, you know, and toughen up, buttercup, you know, and they don't care. So actually it's very difficult for students to learn from someone who is hurting them and who, with whom they feel unsafe. Now, granted, I tell my students, I'm like, you don't have to engage with everything, but you also cannot disengage with everything, right? So I think that there is a need for balance. Do you think that students intrinsically feel unsafe or hurt in the presence of professors that they disagree with? Or do you think that students are able to deal with ideas that they disagree with? Or do you think that faculty should remain agnostic and present ideas that they might disagree with without giving their own personal opinions too much? I am like very like, um, I tell my students how I'm positioned. I give them the whole, this is where I am. Because I tell my students, you know, in this day and age, I said, I want you to know whether your news is coming from Fox or CNN, right? I feel like that makes a difference, right, to how you receive the information. And so I try to give my students enough information about me so they can decide 
is this a Fox News professor or is it a CNN professor, right? And so, but that's me, right? And that's my approach. And I think it's totally fine for professors to not disclose um, whether they're Fox News or, or CNN, because of course, you know, all of the news people, you know, say, oh, we're presenting the objective news, right? So I'm a person, I'm not, you know, maybe for my earlier comment, you know, I'm not one who kind of feels like we can actually be objective. And so I always disclose that to the students. But in giving you that answer, that was the last part of your question. But I also wanted to say something to, to the first part of your question. I think that there are going to be some issues, right, where students are going to feel targeted. Because as I said, I'm a person who I disclose. And so there are some of my students, I'll just use myself, there are some of my students who just from what I say about myself, they feel like this professor is against me, right? She is my enemy, okay? There are some students who do that. But there are other students who say, and I would argue that these are the majority of the students. Unfortunately, when we have the customer service model, right, you only hear from the disgruntled customers, right? Um, but there are some students who appreciate kind of being challenged and being told. So I tell, you know, there are some students who like hearing that it's okay to be uncertain, right? It's okay to not have already made up your mind about these issues. And I actually tell my students, it's okay to be inconsistent, <laughs> um, right? And because I think that's human, right? We're not Kantian, where if I see my child drowning and your child drowning, I'm going to be like, ah, oh, flip a coin. I want to treat both children equally. No, right? We have reasons that we're more closely concerned or connected to certain issues affect us more than others, that certain types of discrimination bother us more than others. And I feel like that's fine, right? Just be critically aware. And so I do think Students can be taught to choose their battles. I don't think students need to be taught, like, you know, just suck it up. Like, no matter what the professor says, just try to, you know, don't take everything personally. No, I think that there's space for students, particularly marginalized students, to say, I cannot, right? This is, no, I, I cannot, like, engage with this. And I think that that's fine. I think the danger is losing moderation in it, right? I just feel like we're teaching our students to be all or nothing. You know, I think students can be taught right, to choose their battles. For some professors, you're just like, from day one, yeah, I can't. But for other professors, maybe you can, right? And you feel like, oh, I disagreed with that. But, you know, the way the professor presented it, you know, I can understand where she's coming from. And I really think most of the students are capable of being in that space. But I think that there are always going to be those students, and those students are going to be the loudest, right, who on some issues just cannot, you know, engage in a way that is removed, right? Because it's so close to them and their kind of identity is, is an issue. And I think universities have to kind of just acknowledge that that's going to happen and just realize that maybe for sometimes what you do for that student and what you do to kind of help that student feel better about the university and feel more included may fall short of what that student wants done. But I think that's a university response matter. I don't think that you can educate students out of feeling deeply when their identities are placed in question. This has been a great conversation. I, I really feel like I've learned a lot from you about this issue, and I appreciate your deep thinking. Thank you very much. I don't want to blindside you, but we actually finish our podcast every time with a question for all of our presenters, which is, do you have a book or a film or a poem or a podcast or any other 
contribution that you would recommend to people, perhaps especially in this case, students, on the topic of free speech and civil discourse? I don't, I don't think I have. I mean, well, obviously I recommend they read my articles, right? Um, (laughs) There you go. Well, if you've got one article that's particularly relevant or maybe particularly um, accessible that you might recommend, that would be perfect. Like it's an academic article. I haven't gotten around to the to trade books, but the anatomy of cancel culture, like that's the one that just came out. You know, maybe kind of an, an idea of what's at stake when you're engaging in the social regulation of speech, and maybe just kind of encourages more thoughtfulness. Yeah, I also recommend it. <laughs> Francisca, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. 